your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, since we've started a series in the morning on the resurrection, um, I, 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 I'm always careful not to repeat on the Sunday evening, but to reinforce what we've talked about on Sunday evenings. And so what I think what we're going to try to do, we'll see uh, how long this takes or where we end up with it, um, is... I'd like for us to walk slowly through what is known as the resurrection chapter, and that is 1 Corinthians 15. It will actually take us uh, probably two weeks to get through these first 11 verses, and even then um, we're bypassing a lot of nuance. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is is a vital, vital, vital passage of Scripture. So uh, chances are uh, what we're going to do tonight, uh, many of you are going to find boring and unnecessary. I'm going to try to convince you that Jesus is risen from the dead. And if you're here on a sunny night in Frankfort, Kentucky, you probably already believe Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, but part of this, I'd like to have it on record. Uh, and also, um, this is something I need, uh, is I need to remind myself that I've dedicated my life, as you have, to the historical fact that God has intervened, Christ has died, and he has risen. And it is more than just an article of faith. I believe it is a matter of truth. Now, if this helps, when we are dealing with a postmodern society, we are asking different questions than what we did in a modern society. In a modern society, what we want to know is what is true. Is X true? In a postmodern society, we want to know, is it good? Truth is secondary at most. Its veracity, is it good, is what matters most. And so what we want to do on Sunday mornings is look at its, its, is the resurrection good? Yeah, it's Christ was raised for our healing we saw this morning. And tonight I want to argue that because we are Christians and truth matters, I, I think it's important for us to see, is it, is it true that Jesus died historically and physically in the flesh uh, there in the first century? Well, that is, a, that is enough of an introduction before we even get to the introduction. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15. You'll stand with me, reverence God's word. We'll read the first 11 verses. The Apostle Paul writes to a very divided church that loves to fight over everything. Wouldn't you love to go to their business meetings? Um, Verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we always ask for the same thing. Your spirit would move, our hearts would be open, the world would be changed. Would you do it? May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See it. One of the great um, things that C.S. Lewis has given to the world of apologetics 
is he is simplified really when it comes to the person and work of Jesus. We only have three options to consider. This is known as Lewis's trilemma. And that is that Jesus, a historical person, we know that he was a historical person for a multitude of reasons. This isn't that sermon. Um, But you're left with Jesus was a liar. That is, he said a lot of things that aren't true. Or secondly, Jesus was a lunatic. That is, he said a lot of things that weren't true, but he really believed them. Or thirdly, Jesus is Lord. And that is that Jesus said a lot of things that were true. And to deny those truths is to try to crucify Jesus. And they tried that once and it didn't work out. You can't put Jesus back into the empty tomb. So to Lewis, we only have one of three options. Jesus, I, or liar, lunatic, or Lord. And some versions of this argument have been used ever since Lewis presented them in various works like Mere Christianity, God on the Dock, and, and other, other works. Since then, however, we have added a fourth category. Jesus could be legend. If you have grown up watching History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel, or every year on Easter, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and all the others, they they release the same documentaries and articles, don't they? And that is that you can't really believe anything that the New Testament says about Jesus. What you can believe in is all these weird writings written by the Gnostics two to three hundred years later. And they are weird. I mean, where like the cross crawls out of the uh, empty tomb, right? And uh, talks and then ascends in the heaven. That's the secret gospel of Mark, right? That's a Nostashi. It's more complicated than that, but nevertheless. Um, uh, fragments of some that supposedly Mary Magdalene had married Jesus and all, all, all this sort of stuff. Is Jesus legend? And of course, that is a very important question that we have to answer. In fact, in reading 1 Corinthians 15, you'll notice that to Paul, one of the big issues to him is the issue of vanity. Is, is worshiping a risen Savior vain or is it wise? Notice again in, in verse 1 and 2, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. Notice that that which I preach, that which you received, that which you believed, that which you stand. Right? That is, that is faith in a nutshell. Uh, and then he says, unless, of course, you believed in vain. You can go on down to verse 10. He returns to this theme yet again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace that he introduced in verses 1 to 2, he now applies them to himself. He says that, that, that if Christ is not risen, then the grace that I believe God showed me, that itself is, is vanity. You can go down again in verse 14, though we didn't read it. Paul will say, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. After all, as, as we see in these opening 11 verses, we'll spend more time, Lord willing, on them next week. The, the, the preaching is the means by which they receive the message. So if, if their faith is vain, the preaching is vain. And so it's almost as if uh, Paul is anticipating uh, uh, Lewis's trilemma and, and the idea that perhaps Jesus and his story is legendary. A fantastical story, but still no more true than, than any others. I want to suggest to you that the full story of Jesus, again, we're only going to look at his resurrection, his death and resurrection, is indeed true. That Christ really did die uh, under Pontius Pilate. And he really was raised bodily from the dead. Let's start here with this question. You can't have an empty tomb unless it's been filled. Is that, is that fair to say? 
That is to say that Christ cannot be risen if Christ has not first died. This this may sound like an obvious point to make, but there are plenty who want to suggest to you that, no, the Jesus of the New Testament didn't actually die. Let me give you, this is just a summary, there's other options. Many suggest what's called a replacement theory. That is the idea that someone else died in Jesus' place. Many like to point to Judas. But this is, interestingly, the prominent theory of Islam. Islam has Jesus in the Quran. Isa, if you go overseas, right? And, and, and uh, uh, they, they believe that Jesus was born of Mary. Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. They, they believe all that. But, but when I say Jesus died under Pontius Pilate, they would say someone looking like Jesus died under Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate believed it was Jesus. This is the replacement theory. Now, we need to note quickly that this is rather madness, I would say. At the foot of the cross, according to the earliest records, his mother was there. Hey, moms, can you tell the difference between your son and any other dude out there? Yeah, you could. Not to mention other members of his family, including one of his apostles, who very likely was a cousin, Apostle John. Then there is the swoon theory. This is the idea of... um, uh, the idea that that Jesus was crucified, but he didn't die. We actually have uh, records of people surviving executions. This isn't, I mean, it's uncommon, yes, but in terms of showing up throughout history, uh, many people have survived executions, even here in the United States. And we have documented uh, evidence that people did survive crucifixions. That's a terrible thing to survive, frankly. I mean, I can't imagine what the recovery period in first century medicine is like. But nevertheless, we, we do have examples of this. And so the theory goes, well, Jesus didn't die. After all, they didn't break his legs. The Bible tells us that. And so what they did was they, they took him down. They put him in a cool, damp tomb. There he mustered the strength three days later to row away the stone by himself. He arm wrestled and defeated armed guards, Roman guards, trained Roman guards, at which point with only three markings on his body, his wrist and his feet, oh, I guess his size of four. He just shows them Galilee like what? Right? This is the problem with swoon theory is not going to happen. For some of us here, and I would include myself here, for me to dig a hole in the backyard, I will not be doing anything else for the next three days to recover. Now imagine surviving crucifixion. Not to mention the little detail we have in the Gospel of John that the guards who know what a dead body looks like went out of their way to verify Jesus was a dead body. And when the verification was there by putting a spear up through his side, there was no need to break his legs. Much like a doctor today, upon looking at a patient, knows whether that body is dead or not. So too we have the same. The third thing is the conspiracy theory. We actually get this in the Bible. And that is that the body was stolen or that the body was moved. This was a common theory at the time. If, uh, in Matthew uh, 28, it says, While they were going, behold, some of the guards told the chief priests all that had taken place. The priest gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews this very day. Read the early records. This story keeps getting repeated even outside of the New Testaments which is what Matthew is actually responding to when he's writing 
25 to 30 years after the events. He's saying this is still the story many Jews have. He says, here's the real genesis of it. It was a lie. Common in, in the New Testament, we saw it this morning in Acts 4, people do not question the truth of the miracles. They question the motivation and the means and the power of those miracles. Here, the, 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 the debate is not, did we see Jesus alive even though we knew he was dead? They could have all said, well, yeah, of course he survived because he didn't die. Rather it is, he's alive, we can't explain it. Just say the sto- body was stolen. And so this theory has, has been around ever since. But again, it, it does have a number of holes. First of all, the tomb was guarded. Them, them rednecks from Galilee ain't stealing the body. There are guards there. Not going to happen. Secondly, the eyewitnesses are varied. Would Mary, let alone his mother, so you have Mary Magdalene uh, and, and, and others, particularly that of his mother, would they want Jesus' body removed? Moms, let's say a bunch of high school boys, which is probably what the disciples are, 8th to 10th grade, something like that. They get this wild idea, hey, let's go steal and move the body. Mom, what are you going to go do? You'll be an extra guard at the tomb. You'll turn against the disciples. Not going to desecrate a body like that. Thirdly, disciples are martyred. Think about it. There's a video I was, I was uh, toying with. I was talking to Don about it. It's a Babylon Bee article, uh, video, so I don't want to get in trouble. I love Babylon Bee, as, as many of you all know. And the video is called um, uh, Why the Resurrection Isn't a Hoax or something like that. And it's basically uh, uh, an actors, Babylon Bee actors, uh, dressed as the apostles. And, and they go around saying, okay, we've got this brilliant idea. Uh, Jesus just died. Let's all go steal the body, okay? And then we tell everybody he was raised from the dead. We're like, oh, wow, that, that's a brilliant idea. That'll spread the message. Yeah, yeah, here's, here's the best part. In the end, we all get brutally murdered, right? And, like, and they're all like, that's a brilliant. And then like Don goes, you had me until the brutally murdered part. No, 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 no. The video goes on. You don't get it. That's the best part, right? We're just going to lie and tell everyone that he's alive, but he's not. But, but then we all get killed. It's going to be awful, Right? And that, that, that's, the, that's the humor of the video is, is it makes no sense. If the disciples steal the body, they're not dying for that lie. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. By the way, all of this is consistent with what it is we find outside of the New Testament, particularly among the pagans. Tacitus was a very important first century uh, historian. Um, and he tells us of, of all the Nero, or, or not Nero's, but Nero's one of them, all the Caesars. He wrote this quote, Christus, that is the Latin for Christ. From whom the name had its origin, Christianity. Christ suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Notice there, this isn't the New Testament. This is a guy who has no interest in Christianity. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of this evil. He just summarized the four Gospels in the book of Acts. In a few words, in one paragraph. There it is, that he died under Pontius Pilate. So did Jesus die? Yeah, I, I, think, I think he died. Secondly, um, are the eyewitnesses that we have to the resurrection true? Or are they trustworthy? According to the Bible, the number of people who saw Jesus alive is quite a large number. 
The Bible emphasizes the myriad of eyewitnesses' account, and it didn't all happen at one time, and, and they all come from different backgrounds, stories, and everything else. There are ten, according to the resources I've, I've, I've read this week, ten distinct appearances full of variety. Two were individual accounts, others included small groups, and even one included a large group. Look, for example, in the passage we just read, what it is that Paul gives us. Notice the eyewitnesses, verse 5, Peter and the 12. Verse 6, 500 brothers at one time. These are believers. By the way, notice what Paul says. 500 saw him alive, some of whom are, are still living, which means to the original readers, they could go personally and interview them themselves. James, there in verse 7, perhaps he uh, also appeared to Jude, his other, uh, one of his other half-brothers, and the rest of the family. James, who at first didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, witnesses the resurrection, becomes the uh, main bishop of the Jerusalem church, shows up in Acts 15, wrote a book of the New Testament. All the apostles, again in verse 7, and then in verse 8, the apostle Paul himself claims he saw him. The Gospels additionally, additionally mentioned the first witnesses were women, which would have been unusual if you were making up the story. Women were not allowed to bear testimony in the court of law. Their, their, their word was viewed as untrustworthy. That obviously is, is wrong, so don't, don't throw anything at me yet. But in, in the first century Roman world and the Jewish world and in, in, in the Roman culture, women, w- women were not reliable witnesses. Here come the four Gospels, and they say women were the first to go to the tomb. The dudes were scared to death. You talk about bravery among the women. Why do they tell us that story? Because it happened. And if you're trying to perpetuate a lie, you don't put it on, on, on the lips of untrustworthy witnesses by the culture. Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, the guards at the tomb are eyewitnesses. They go to the chief priest and say, dude, something weird happened. He ain't there. Multiple appearances with the disciples, including those with and without Thomas. You remember, Thomas isn't there at first. And what does Thomas say? Look, I ain't believing nothing until I see it with my own eyes. And then Jesus shows up. Acts in Acts 1-3 mentions 120 followers of Jesus uh, 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 witnessed uh, the, the ascension. Now, if you are witnessing the ascension, you've witnessed Jesus is alive. That makes sense. But are they trustworthy? You, you can say a lot of people saw them. A lot of people saw me dunk a basketball when I was seventh grade. I, don't talk to them, please. And I'm going to make up names for you because I didn't dunk no real basketball in seventh grade. Okay. But are the, are the eyewitnesses that we have in the Bible and elsewhere, are they trustworthy? A couple things to note here. First of all, the majority of the early converts to Christianity were Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Uh, this may sound strange to you. The first people to witness Jesus alive weren't Christians because it didn't exist yet. They were Jews. They grew up as Jewish boys and girls in a very Jewish culture with certain Jewish expectations upon them. And one of them was not the Messiah will be executed by the Romans and then raised from the dead without raising an army. That wasn't what they were told. And here they are. And so according to Acts, thousands were converted shortly after his ascension. And no doubt, many of these, these converts would have been direct eyewitnesses, having met or even heard or perhaps saw him following the resurrection. They likely would have sat under some of his teaching at various points. Jesus was very public with his ministry. Many of these converts were likely antagonists. These included priests, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. 
Who were Jesus' primary antagonists? Oh, also remember, there was a dude, what was his name? Paul, who didn't like Jesus too much, who became a follower. The early converts launched Christianity not as a sect of Judaism, but rather as a distinct faith from Judaism. Some overlap, yes. But the idea wasn't that we are a, a, a we've, 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 Uh, tinkered with Judaism. Rather, it is the Messiah has come. And if you reject him, you reject our message. That isn't Judaism because many of the Jews didn't see Jesus as Messiah. They're not the same thing. And by the way, remember, these are Jews doing this. Read Acts 15. The question is, well, is circumcision circumcision necessary for the gospel? They come say, no, that's necessary for Judaism. It's not Christianity. What's necessary for Christianity is that Christ is risen from the dead. And they began to worship on Sunday. Have you ever thought about that? You ever look at your calendar right after church? You're thinking, today's the first day of the week. I thought we were supposed to rest on the, on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Yeah, but what you get in, 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 in early uh, Christianity is that those Jews still recognize the Sabbath out of pattern and habit and tradition. yes. But then they would get up super early before work on Sunday to go to church. You imagine that. We have a hard enough time getting here at 11 in the morning, right? They would get up early before work so they could worship. Why? Because Christ was risen from the grave on Sunday. And what is Sunday? It's the first day of the week. It's the day of light. It's the first day of creation. Christ is ushered in a new day of creation. Acts 27, Revelation 1, 10, if you want two references. Secondly, we've already mentioned this. Many of the first eyewitnesses were martyred. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded in in the New Testament in Acts. According to tradition, Peter, Andrew, and Simon were all crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword. Mark was dragged to death by horses through Alexandria streets. Luke died by hanging. James the Greater was beheaded. James the Just was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. Thomas was run through with a spear in India. Bartholomew, sometimes called Nathaniel, was whipped to death in Armenia. Matthias, who remember replaced Judas in Acts 1, he was stoned and then beheaded. Again, do you go through that sort of stuff? I will pay a fine for a lie if that lie makes me enough money to pay for the fine. Wouldn't you? Right? That makes sense, right? You're not going to let someone drag you to the top of the temple and throw you down. And that was the easy way that the disciples went. The Apostle John, according to tradition, is the only one that did not die a martyr's death, but he certainly did suffer, including he was thrown into boiling oil left for uh, uh, marooned, rather, on Patmos, where he had the revelation. Would any of you, I don't want to go out in the hot sun in June, July, or August for 10 minutes for my faith, alone boiling water. So can we trust eyewitnesses? I, I do think that we can. Here's, here's, I think this is the last point. Is the biblical record trustworthy? You pick up your Bible, can you believe it? The Bible says Christ was risen from the dead. Can you believe that? Well, again, if, if, if you watch secular his so-called historians, one of the things that strikes me is they conveniently leave out the New Testaments. I believe that the New Testament is God-inspired word, okay? With that said, it is also a historic document. Is that fair, is that fair enough? I believe it, it was given to us by God, but it was also written by man in a historical context telling a historical story. Much in the same way that you would read Homer, knowing that there's a lot of fantastical elements to it, uh, historians still wonder, was there really a Troy? 
Did that battle really happen? We have a story of it. Is it true? You read Beowulf. You think, well, there's not really dragons and Grendel and all that sort of stuff. But we understand there's real history even in that myth. So you come to the New Testament. Historians should be honest enough to say we have some really good historical stuff here. It is a spiritual document, but it's also a historical one. I want, I want us to notice a few things here if you're not lost already and overwhelmed. First of all, the death and resurrection of Jesus is attested very, very, very early. 9-11 happened 22 years ago, almost 22 years ago. I'm willing to bet that if we were to sit down, you could give me very detailed information, accurate detailed information of that day. I can. I remember what class I was in when we first heard about the first plane. Shortly thereafter, the, the bell went off, and I remember my wife and I, we, we've been dating for about a year, right around our, our, it was 10 days shy of our one-year anniversary. And I remember going to the junior hallway, and, and all we said to each other is, have you heard? There was nothing else. And these are high schoolers in the junior-senior hallway, which were somewhat connected with, with the middle section. You heard nothing. High schoolers. We, we, we were loud in general. You would hear lockers closed gently, silence. And then I went to oral communications class with Mr. Bishop, and there was no one in there. There was no teacher, no students, nothing. Come to find out, Mr. Bishop, uh, his TV wasn't very good, but Mr. McMillan's TV was better. And so without telling anybody, we're all just supposed to go to Mr. McMillan's because Mr. Bishop wasn't going to leave class. He wasn't going to come back and say, oh, by the way, we're watching Dan Rather, CBS. It was CBS. So, so we just had to figure it out. I remember that you, you, you couldn't call people in New York. Some of you may have known people who were in the New York, New Jersey area. You try to call. Even those who had cell phones, there are not many of us did at the time. You couldn't get a hold of them, could you? I still remember how angry I was when my soccer coach still made us have practice that night. Everybody canceled everything except for my busted soccer coach. And I remember when I came back from soccer practice, the third building had just, had just collapsed. You could do the same thing, and I'm leaving out tons of detail. What if I told you we have a document dated within 10 to 15 years of the resurrection telling us Christ is risen from the dead? And there's nothing like it in ancient history. Would you say that document is reliable? Yeah. And it's more reliable than anything written 200 years after the facts? And it's so early that anyone who knows better can contradict it? Yeah. And what if I told you we read it a few minutes ago? 1 Corinthians 15 is a letter. But, but more than that, what you have within 1 Corinthians 15 is what scholars have, have, have proven to be an early confession, an early catechism. The New Testament is full of these. And 1 Corinthians 15 is likely one of the earliest. In fact, can I just show you some of the reasons why we think this? It's easier to see in the Greek, but you can see in the English. Notice again verse 1. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So notice what follows is what Paul himself received, right? And so, so, so already we're dating this. This is what I told you. So, so now, if we're dating this, in, this letter in the 50s, you know, there's different people, you really have to date what follows to when Paul first showed up in Corinth, right? And then he says, it's the same thing I received from, from the apostles, the original eyewitnesses, which means you have to date what follows, not when Paul arrived in Corinth, but when Paul received it from the apostles. 
And so, so I, I gave to you what I received. And Paul, being a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, understands the tradition that truth, spiritual truths, are something you receive and you pass on verbatim. And one of the ways you do things verbatim is you put things in poetry and in easy-to-remember to catechisms, confessions. We understand this, right? How did you learn your ABCs? You sang a goofy song. You still sing the song. You know your ABCs without the tune, don't you? You still sing the tune. This is, this is common. This is why you have so much poetry in the Bible in the ancient world. So, so uh, you stand there, and then notice verse 3, I delivered to you as the first importance that I received. Here it is. Here's the confession. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Notice the repetition of Scripture isn't just for theological reasons. It's for repetition reasons. It's a confession. So what you have here, we can date easily within 15 years of the facts. And that's why he can later on and say, many people can affirm to you this is true because they're still living. Might be some in this city right now. Remember in Acts 2, people from around the opposite of Babel, people came from around the, the, the Roman Empire into Jerusalem, experienced Christ's ascension and, the, and descension of the Spirit, and then they disperse. And some of the early churches are probably planted through that. Well, on top of that, each of the Gospels are written within 30 to 40 years of the fact and they themselves are based off of eyewitness testimony. Both Matthew and John are personal eyewitnesses. It's their story. And there's reasons that you can see that within the text, but we won't, won't bore you with that. Mark is clearly relying on Peter long, 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 long time ago, probably eight years ago. We actually explored that. Luke is relying on Paul. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, when you do the, uh, 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 the Lord's Supper passage of 1 Corinthians 11, compare that with Luke's account, and they are verbatim in the Greek. They are borrowing from the same source. It's probably an early tradition of sharing communion with early believers, rooted in the historical events. And even beyond the Gospels, the New Testament emphasizes the historic resurrection on virtually every page. Many of the letters in the New Testament are written before the Gospels, James and Galatians being two of them. So here you have these early writings, early writings within 20 years saying, hey, Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, secondly... The gospel parallels in some variety. This may sound like strange, but I do not believe the gospels contradict. I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself, okay? It doesn't. I don't think that at all. If Matthew says there were two blind men and Mark says there were one blind man, is that a contradiction? No. Let me show you how this works. In order to have two, you have to have one. Is, 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 that, is, that, is that fair to say? So, so if there were two blind men, is it fair to say there was one blind man? Why does Mark want to emphasize one as Matthew wants to emphasize two? You can read in the text. We, can, we explored that previously. But that, that's, that's the sort of contradictions people usually point out, that sort of silly stuff. However, I want you to think. You're a mom and a dad. Something broke in the kitchen. Someone's going to get in trouble. You've got... Four kids. You go up to kid number one. What happened? He tells you this elaborate story that ultimately tells you the cat did it, which could be true. It probably is true. Our cat is a monster. And I, I, I know she's been all cuddly, and man, it hasn't felt good today. And, and just, it just, it's, the, the cat has soiled more in our house than, than the dog. And the fact that the dog gets in more trouble for that, it, it anyways. So, so this elaborate story, the cat did it. 
Kid number two, you pull them aside, and they tell you the same elaborate story, every detail resulted in the cat did it. Kid number three, you ask them, all right, you're my favorite. What's really going on here? They tell you the same elaborate story. Every detail is the same. The cat did it. Kid number four, the same elaborate story. The cat did it, right? All the details are the same. Mom, dad, what are you thinking? They got their story straight. You're a cop, detective. Something's happened, a murder, a robbery, something serious. You get all your eyewitnesses together. Why do you separate them? Because you're looking for variation. If they have the broad story that is the same, with variation, what you have are eyewitnesses giving you perspective that isn't rehearsed. Right? What do you get in the four Gospels? One will say three women went. Another will say Mary Magdalene went. Are those contradictory? No, because Mary Magdalene is one among the three. Why mention Mary Magdalene? Why mention the three? Some will say two angels appeared. Some will say one angel appeared. Those contradictory? No. Why the variation? The same reason, mom and dad, when you're trying to deal with your kids or your detective trying to discover what is truth. The variations tell you this isn't rehearsed. It's based off of eyewitness testimony. So what you get in the New Testament is not only early creeds adopted by the early church who would know whether or not it was true, but what you also have is the variation we would expect among eyewitnesses. And we know their accounts are based off of eyewitness testimonies we've already shared. Well, we'll end it there. I think, and there's many other reasons in addition to this that we can say, Christ was risen from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead. And and it isn't a spiritual resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. As we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is risen, so shall we. So it isn't just, hey, look, something cool happened in history, but that something cool will happen in history. Christ has defeated death, and he will raise me in the end. So I have nothing to fear in this broken world. We began by asking the question, is our faith in vain? And Paul begins with that point, that you know your faith isn't in vain because look there in Jerusalem. There is an empty tomb. Death could not hold him. Sin no longer defines us, for Christ is risen indeed. Paul returns to this theme at the very end, chapter 15, verse 48. I'm sorry, this, this is going to have to be 58. I knew that didn't sound right. Can we go back up? Can I read to you what I always read at uh, burials? If it's a burial of a believer, this is what I'm going to read. Spoiler alert. Verse 50. I'll tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's usually where I stop. But let's read verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work. Let me add a word here. In the work of the living Lord. Because that's his message in 1 Corinthians 15. Know this. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your faith, your salvation is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us.